I called this lecture, Two Moves, Two Weddings, and Three Funerals, How to Deal with Our Anger with God. It came from on page 36 of our workbook. You might have noticed she asked a question. Describe a time when you have been angry with God. And some of us probably didn't have to go too far back in our history to find a time that we were angry with God. And in a group this size, there's probably maybe some women who are even angry with God right now as you sit here. And I think I'd just like to pray at this point. Father God, thank you for being our loving, good, sovereign God. Thank you for every woman that is here. And I ask that you open our hearts and our minds to your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit who will teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. Well, Naomi appears to be angry with God. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, uh, in Ruth 1, things are far, now we don't know, it's kind of like texting. We don't know her inflection here. So it's either like really, you know, like a rant or maybe like Eeyore. We don't know which way, right? So you can read it however you want. Either things are far more, this is her talking to her girls, the daughter-in-laws. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Then when she enters the town and everybody recognizes her and says, Naomi, it's Naomi, she's back. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So we don't know which way she was, but there is a hint of anger there. This brings me to so what now what questions for myself that I need to answer. And I've said before, if I have to answer them, if I have to answer them, then I'm going to ask you them too. So the so what now what? Have I ever been angry with God? Is it a sin to be angry? Is it a sin to be angry with God? And what do I do with my anger with God? And I want us to look to God's word to answer these questions. So I want to start with considering a man named Job. If there's anyone in scripture that might kind of have a tendency, might lean towards being angry with God, it would be Job. The very first verse in Job 1 says, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of us. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. By including Job for us in God's word, we get the most interesting picture of what is going on in the heavenly realm compared to what is going on in the earthly realm. And what you find as you read through Job is God actually points Job out to Satan and says, look at my faithful servant, Job. And Satan says, well, sure, because you've protected and provided for him. He's a rich man. If you took everything away, quote, he would, Job would, quote, surely curse you to your face. And God says, go ahead, test my faithful servant, this man of integrity. But God puts a stipulation don't touch his health, his body physically. So what it happens then is Satan makes his first attack. And this all oxen and donkeys stolen and farmhands killed except for one. All of Job's sheep and shepherds are burned up except for one shepherd. Raiders steal all of Job's camels and kill all of his servants 
but one. A powerful wind comes and collapses the house that all of his children are in. They are all killed. Remember, Job does not know what is going on. He doesn't know what has happened in the heavenly realms. What he knows is his life has just been turned upside down. Like no other person I know of, all of this really happened to the man. And this was his response. Job 1, verse 20. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's room and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Don't read that verse too quickly, okay? Look, look at what's behind that verse. The implication is that blaming God would have been sin, okay? Let's keep going. So Satan comes back and says, yeah, but, you know, and God says, okay, touch his body. You can harm him physically, but don't take his life, so Job then, with all of this that has happened, now he has boils all over his body from head to toe. And this is Job's response in Job 2. Job scraped his skin because of the boils with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, oh good, here's his helpmate. Let's see what she says. Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. So we're getting a picture here that Job has still not sinned. Now, right after this, Job's four friends come along um, to console him, to comfort him. And they sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. And actually three of the four of them should have kept their mouths shut, but they didn't. God rebukes them later. So the rest of the book of Job is his friends telling Job what's wrong. And Job responding to the friend, and then you're gonna see a theme, Job then talks to God. Next friend speaks, Job responds to the friend, and then Job goes to God. Over and over again, he goes to God. Even as he has his meltdowns. These first two chapters, Job's standing pretty strong, but he does, chapter three is his first meltdown. He is a man, he's just a man. Sometimes Job gets it right in the book of Job and sometimes Job gets it wrong. After 35 chapters of this going back and forth between Job and his friends and Job and God, Job and his friends, God finally speaks. This is what God says. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Now God continues with over 70 questions to Job. And after about 50 of them, by the way, Job doesn't know any of the answers. Zero, total fail. After about 50 of the questions, Job speaks up. And this is what Job says in chapter 40. Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Well, God's not through. He has more to say. He continues with about 20 more questions for Job. Job can answer only one question from God. 
and we see it in Job 42. You ask, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. God then addresses three of the four friends and tells them they were wrong in what they said to Job and about God. And he gives them instructions and says, here's the offering you need to make. And by the way, you need a prayer service and Job will lead it for you. In Job 42, when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Another version says he lived a long, good life. So what now what? Lessons I can learn from Job. It is better to know God than to know the answers. Do you realize God never explained to Job what happened, what was going on? Go back and read. It's just question after question that God is asking Job. He gives Job no answer. And yet seeing God, knowing God like never before was enough for Job. In addition, God is vindicated at his word. Satan is proved wrong and Job's faith is perfected. I, for myself, I understand that trials and tribulations come to the godly. Job was a godly man. God described him that way himself. Said he was a man of integrity. I also see that a long good life, quote, doesn't mean the absence of trials, hardships. So um, some so what now what questions for me and for you. Do I believe I am entitled to a problem-free life? No, we don't believe that. So then I had to ask, do I act like it? That was a little harder. Do I feel the need to know the answers before I can trust God? Am I satisfied to know God? Which then made me ask myself, is knowing God my goal? Back to our original questions. Is it a sin to be angry? And is it a sin to be angry with God? Again, to help us answer this first question, is it a sin to be angry? I want us to look at scripture. Specifically, let's look at God and Jesus. Is it a sin to be angry? Well, let's ask, was or is God ever angry? There's a lot of verses on this, and I just chose one from the Old Testament and one from the New. Psalm 711, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. So not only was God angry, he is angry right now in Romans, in the New Testament. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There's some scriptures on your handout there about God's anger. Romans 12 tells us that God's anger is a righteous anger. The Psalm 30 Scripture talks about that God's anger doesn't last, only, it only lasts a moment, and his favor a lifetime. The Micah 7.18 tells us again that God doesn't stay angry, and he actually delights in showing unfailing love to us. Exodus 34, star that one. If you don't go and read any other scripture, star that one, because this is God's description of himself. That's pretty powerful. So this is what God says about himself, and he describes himself as being slow to anger. 
on your handout, you'll also see some scriptures on how God responds in his anger. And if you read those on your own, you'll find that humility, repentance, submission, and worship turn his anger away. And God's anger is part of his holy, whole character. So it's combined with his love, his mercy, his grace, his patience, and of course his righteousness, justice, mercy, and on and on. You can read those scriptures for yourself. There's also scriptures on there about how Jesus demonstrated God's anger while he was here on earth. So we know clearly from scripture that God gets angry, as does Jesus. We can also see from scripture that God is holy, as is Jesus. And I chose one Old Testament and one New Testament verse again to show. 1 Samuel 2, 2, no one is holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. And then Revelation 4, 8, Candy just uh, quoted that scripture for us in our opening songs, and we sang it. This is describing worshiping God in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. So we can answer the question from God's word. I love geometry. This is like a, a beautiful geometry proof right here. So God gets angry. God is holy. Therefore, anger is not inerrantly a sin. To be angry is not a sin. Okay? So we need to go deeper. Is it a sin for me to be angry with God? Although the politically correct answer for me to give you is no, not really, it's okay. God made us this way in his image. We can't help our feelings and other excuses or exceptions we would come up with. But I stand here as lovingly as I can say to you the truth. The bottom line is, it is a sin for me to be angry with God. Every time and always. Job's anger came, eventually came, from Job's own sin, not trusting in the character of God, in God's goodness. And if you go back to Adam and Eve, that's exactly what happened to them. That's what caused the first sin, is they did not trust in the goodness of God. They thought he was holding out on them. And that resulted for Job in misunderstanding of Job's circumstances and some wrong assessments of who God is and what God was doing. Yes, it is a sin every time I am angry with God. When I'm angry with God, I'm not trusting in who God says he is. I'm believing that God has done something wrong, which he never does, that he could and should be doing a better God job than what he is. I'm not believing God. I may be believing in God, but I'm not believing God. If I'm angry with God, I am operating under one or more of these false assumptions. And maybe you could add some to my list. The first one, I just call it ease entitlement. When I think my life should be easy, God should prevent tragedy from happening to me. I deserve immunization from unpleasant circumstances. That's ease entitlement. Another false assumption, limited sovereignty. By the way, we know that first one's false, right? Jesus tells us, newsflash, in this world, you will have trouble. It's a fact. That scripture goes on to give us hope, though, that he's overcome the world. And then later he tells us, and I offer you peace in the middle of all your trouble. Limited sovereignty. God's sovereignty has limitations in my life. The two words don't even go together, if you know what sovereignty means, right? But if I'm angry with God, what I'm saying is, you're in control, but clearly not over what is happening to me. 
And the last one, a somewhat good God. That's what I must be believing to be angry with God. God really isn't good. God's capable of being bad or weak or foolish or cruel. I really don't worship a good God. And that too is false. So after these false assumptions, I think the easiest place to start with this, because this is hard, is with a fact. I won't always know what God is doing or why he is doing or how, doing it or how he's going to do it. This is from scripture, Proverbs 20. The Lord directs our steps, so why try to understand everything along the way? And then from Isaiah, God talking says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So the answer is yes. It is, John Piper puts it this way. It is never, ever, ever right to be angry with God. So let's all just stop being angry with God. Amen, go to your groups, right? You know, I struggled writing this uh, lecture and it was 64 minutes in a four page handout and I've cut out over half of it to share with you today, but I struggled with it myself. And I know I'm not gonna win friends and influence people by this lecture. Uh, I told Michelle, I said, you know, you ask them, come back, just give us three times. I said, maybe you should have said four. Come back next week, there'll be food and we'll have fun. But today we're gonna do some hard work Um, in just trying to answer, so how do I handle my anger? And I even changed the title of my own lecture as I wrote it. Originally, it was, how do I handle my anger at God? And as I wrote this and God worked in my own heart, I realized, no, how do I handle my anger with God? That's the only way I can handle my anger is with God. So here we go. I was reading in Psalm and the scripture just stuck out and I'm like, Lord, that's for my lecture. That's exactly, that's exactly it. So in Psalm 62, this is David speaking and David, King David, David who fought Goliath, grows up to be king, anointed by God, and yet he has a lot of problems, a lot of enemies in his own family. It's, it's not an easy life being king. And at the end of this chapter where he shared some of his frustrations, he comes to a conclusion for himself and his people. And this is the conclusion. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. So when I am angry with God, the first thing I need to do is talk with God. And the with is important there. Really, it should be communicate, but all the ones he gave me start with the T. So I just used a preposition that I want you to pay attention to. Talk with God. That means to talk to God and listen to God back, okay? Psalm 62, eight, pour out your heart to him. John Piper says, if you're angry with God, it is never right not to tell him so. If you are sinning by being angry with God, don't compound the sin by hypocrisy. So talk with God, not because he needs any new information or my wisdom. Talk with God. Job did this. Job talked, God talked, Job listened. Job learned, which then Job repented and Job obeyed. 
Cain, if you look at Cain, by the way, it didn't take long in the Bible for anger to show up. Cain was, Cain and Abel were the first two boys ever born and Cain gets angry. But the difference is Cain doesn't obey God. And God calls him on it, by the way. God calls him into conversation. God asks Cain a question, why are you angry? Anyway, okay, that was part I was supposed to cut out. All right, so Job, he raged, protested, moaned, groaned, accused, complained. He went back and forth between faith and despair through the whole chapter. He is a man, back and forth, faith and despair. But the one thing he did not do is ever stop persisting with God. All through, even in his moment of despair, even when he was getting it wrong, and accusing God of of wrong things and not believing God. He was still persisting with God, continually turning to God, and that's our second thing. By the way, these three are not meant to be steps. Do this, do this, do this, boom, happy. No more anger with God. I don't see it that way. I think these are interwoven that we need to probably revisit and not boom, boom, boom. They're all together and sometimes we need to go back to them multiple times as we deal with our anger with God. Psalm 62, eight says, God is our refuge. This is why we turn to him, right? We have a choice. When I'm angry with God, I have a choice. I can either turn to God or I can turn from God. I need to turn to him in repentance. I'm not saying that you sinned and that's what causes you to be angry. I'm saying if you're angry, you are now sinning. So start there with repentance. God gave me an acronym years ago that helped me understand repentance. Cry. When I'm repentant, you know, 1 John 1, 9 Everybody probably quotes that verse a lot, has it memorized. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So all we need to do is confess. It's so much more than just saying, I'm sorry. So when we confess, we need to cry. The C stands for confession. What that just means, calling sin a sin, agreeing with God that I have sinned. No excuses, you know, not trying to explain away my anger. I can't help it. It's only natural. Who wouldn't be? That's like saying, I'm sorry, but. Has ever, anybody ever apologized to you that way? You know, it's not real. We'll just say that. It's not real. If you're saying, I'm sorry, but, well then no, you're not sorry. Okay. All right. All right. So let's keep going. Psalm 51 is on your handout. You can read that. A beautiful confession from David after he has sinned. All right. Uh, The R stands for repent. Now repent literally means to turn. Not a 360. If I do a 360, I'm still going the same direction, right? Repentance is a 180. And if we think about it this way, every time I sin, whatever the sin is, being angry with God or any of the other ones that I do, when I sin, every time I sin, I am, I am walking away from God. So when I repent and I confess and I say, God, I am sinning and I am sorry, I am walking back towards God in repentance. But there's a third. Yield. The Y stands for yield. And that's through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of God's word, and 
the fellowship, the community of believers, your ladies that are sitting right here. This is how we yield. Because see, if, I, if all I do is confess and say, I'm sorry, I've sinned and I, I don't wanna do it anymore, but then I don't do the yield part, what do I do? I sin again. And then I go, I'm sorry, I don't wanna do it anymore. And boy, I'll get dizzy pretty quickly without the yield. So the yield, and again, there are scriptures on your handout. We're just gonna look at one, Galatians 5, 25. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. That's King James. NIV says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. And NLT says, since we are living by the spirit, let us follow the spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Well, I, what does this practically mean? What does this look like when I wake up in the morning and I live my day and I go to bed at night and I sleep and I wake up the next day? to keep in step with the spirit what comes in mind for you for me this come, came to mind a marching band a vaudeville routine you know how they all line up you know and they do that all together or the three-legged race where your legs are tied together as I looked at these pictures I was thinking what do they all have in common they all require intentionality none of that just happens they all require a leader and a follower. They all require practice, discipline, precision, choice, actually choices, step after step. And the obvious walking with the Spirit implies an ongoing relationship. And the second way that we yield is through the power of God's word. Psalm 119 is there for you. Second Timothy, we looked at last week, what scripture does for us, six things there. And then the third, community, Hebrews 3. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day. See, this is what we do for one another as children of God. So this talking with God, turning and returning to God is what leads us to trusting God. Beyond believing in God, a deeper understanding of who God is of trusting God to be who God is. Psalm 62, eight, trust in him at all times. The focus, what do I know to be true of God? And there are several uh, scriptures on your handout there. Isaiah 26.3, I want us to look at this promise together. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. This reminded me of the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. How many of you know that hymn? Yeah, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in this darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his marvelous face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Question for you again, does, Job, does God ever answer Job? No, no. And we've already looked at Job's response. It was not God's explanation, but the encounter with God, the deeper experience of knowing God. Remember, Job said, I had heard about you before, but now I've seen you a deeper knowing of God. What do I know to be true about God from his word? Not only are there those scriptures on your handout you can look at, but you're gonna get at your tables today, truth about God's character. 
And again, I encourage you to look at those on your own. 1 John 4, these are in your handout, says God is love. And later in 1 John 4, verse 16, it says, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. That's where you go, ladies. Put your trust in his love. God is love. Again, enjoy reading those scriptures about our great God this week or in your groups if your leader so decides. For now, I want to look at just two more of those. Psalm 33. I get to verses like these and I must decide for myself, do I believe it or not? By the way, if I believe it or not, does it make it true or not? It is true. It is in God's word. But I need to decide, am I going to believe it or not? For the word of the Lord holds true and we can trust everything he does. He loves whatever is just and good. The unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth We put our hope in the Lord. He's our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Proverbs 3, 5. Whatever, regardless of whatever is happening in my life. In this lecture, I was telling someone this morning, this is the first lecture I think I have ever done where I have not shared anything personal from my own life. I took it all out because I was heavily convicted that the second I tell you my story, all it takes is for you to say, yeah, but she doesn't know what's going on in my life. And that's not the point. We're not one-upping one another on our hard times, right? So regardless of whatever is happening in my life, whether I understand it or not, whether I have one question for God or 1,000, I am to trust in the Lord with all my heart. Depending on my own understanding is not the answer. What else do I know from God's word? There's, there's going to be trials and sorrows in life. That's the John 16 passage. God gives me peace of mind and heart. That's the John 14 passage on your handout. Psalm 34, beautiful. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. 2 Corinthians 1 tells me that God longs to comfort me and then allows me to comfort others. And then the James 1, look at the progression that's there from troubles all the way to completeness and needing nothing. Two placables I wanna talk about because a lot of times when we're in pain with troubles and that's when we're gonna be tempted to be angry with God, right? Sometimes people quote scripture to you and if we're honest, we kinda just wanna punch them in the face maybe. And these are two of those verses Are y'all like that? Is it just me that has a little mean streak sometimes? (laughs) So there are, I call them placables because people have them in their house. And I'm not saying they're the wrong scripture to quote. What I'm actually want to tell you is they're the perfect scripture to quote. It's deeper when you know what's around it though. Okay. So the first, um, finish it for me. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So. The tale of two placables, that's the first one I want to talk about, Romans 8, 28. Do you realize if you'll go back a little and forward a little, Romans 8, 28 is right there in the middle. And what has happened, it start, Romans uh, verse 18 says, 
Yet what we suffer, now it's talking about immense suffering. As a matter of fact, suffering is so bad, you can't even pray for yourself. So the Holy Spirit prays for you. And he doesn't even have words, it's so bad. He has groanings. Right after that is this verse, Romans 8, 28. That's pretty cool, right? So on your plaque at home, you need to kind of mark it up okay and by the way right after this verse is the verses I won't read at my funeral I, I, if I say this at least once a time I figure when I die somebody is going to remember this the end of Romans 8 I love this couched suffering God's working for good and the end is nothing can separate you from his love for you Nothing, and there's a whole beautiful long list, and I'll just read part of it. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And then it goes on. I'm just going to read it because I want to. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love which is what Satan was trying to do to Job, by the way. It did not work. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. One more placable. If I would have started, for I know the plans I have for you. And you, again, you know, she's quoting the scripture to you and you're going yada, 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 get away from me before my anger comes on you. Again, it actually is such a beautiful verse. Consider the context though. Do you know this is written to the people of Israel when they are in captivity. They're not even in their own land anymore. And by the way, it takes 70 years at least for this promise to be fulfilled. So again, just understand what we're quoting and what we're claiming. I wish I could say I've got this all down, but I'm learning with you. And not being angry with God might seem really hard, especially even now this morning for some of you with the things that are going on in your lives, the troubles, the hard times that you're facing. But I can tell you, it becomes much easier the more I know him. Second Peter 1, 3, I didn't put it up here on purpose. I don't care if you didn't write anything down. I just want you to write these four words down. And they're the fill in the blank, what I left out on purpose. 2 Peter 1.3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this. Okay, so it just told me, I can, I do have everything I need to live a godly life, to not sin by being angry with God. Well, please tell me, what's the key? We have received all of this by coming to know him. Coming to, that's what happened to Job. Job came to know God in a deeper way and he no longer had any questions for God. He was called to repentance. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Let me tell you about Nabil. Nabil, uh, I read his book several years ago when it came out, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He was a former Muslim, a Christian apologist, a medical doctor, a brilliant man. I got to hear him, I never got to meet him. 
He was diagnosed with cancer 11 years to the day of his actual decision to follow Jesus. In the course of a year and a month, so he was diagnosed last August. In the course of a year and a month, he was diagnosed with cancer, a very painful cancer that spread throughout his body. He lost a child uh, in October, right after he was diagnosed. The treatments failed. Nabil died two weeks ago. His funeral was Thursday, last Thursday. I watched probably four to five hours of his video logs last week as I was preparing for this. And I want to show you a three-minute clip of Nabil. He's dying in this uh, video you'll see. If you know who Nabil is, he is a stra- was, well now he's perfect, but he was a strapping young man, thick, Lorene's beautiful black, dark hair, thick, very strong, and you'll see uh, what cancer has done to him at this part of his life. And I want you to listen to what he says. All right. But let's say the worst should happen, and let's say God should take me through this disease. I had all these months to prepare for. I had all this time to spend with my wife and my daughter, more memories to make, loose ends to tie up, tell my parents I love them, write more works, write more things to tell the world. This didn't have to happen. God could have taken my life just like that. The end could have come just like that. It happens for people all around the world. So who am I to say that this is a tragedy of the worst order? It's not. There's much worse that's going on in the world today. But no matter what is going on, I cannot think of something worse than being crucified. And of all the reasons to be crucified, I cannot think of anything worse than to be crucified because I love the people who are crucifying me. To save the very people who are crucifying me. That is the worst. And I think about what Jesus went through for us on the cross. When I start feeling self-pity and I start thinking what is happening to me, I just turn my eyes to Jesus. I say, Jesus, what you did for me on the cross far outweighs anything I'm going through right now. There is nothing I am going through that compares to what you went through for me. I will not forsake his name. In the face of any pain, in the face of any suffering, I will not forsake his name. And here's the thing, finally, to close with. If death should come, should the worst happen, should life end, guess what? It's actually only beginning. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, it is just the beginning of our real life. Though we're we're seeing life as if through a veil right now. And we see beauty, we see colors, we see sunsets, we taste tastes, we hear music, we see art. We think this is all so beautiful. This is nothing compared to what waits for us on the other side of this life. And we have assurance that we will be there because of the work of Jesus Christ. So how can we ask the question, God, 
Why is there suffering if you're a loving God? The only way we can ask that question is if we're so hopelessly myopic and short-sighted on our own pains. Instead of seeing who God is, what He has done for us, and what He has procured for us in the afterlife. If we stop being so hopelessly self-centered and micro-focused on the pain that we experience in this life, we will begin to see the greatness of God and the eternal picture in which He has procured for us life and life evermore. In the face of an eternal life of bliss with our Creator, no amount of suffering or pain on this earth can shake our confidence in Him. As I was um, contemplating this last week and thinking, what am I going to say? to these women. Nobody likes to be called a sinner. (laughs) I don't either. But every time I'm angry with God, I am sinning. So I had my alarm set. I was working on the lecture and I had my alarm set because I was supposed to meet a lady for lunch at just three minutes away. So the alarm goes off. I jump in the car and I start going and on the radio, this song played. I'd never heard the song before. I pulled over and started writing down some words, thinking I've got to get home and look this song up. I wanted to hear the words again, and I wanted to know the story behind the song, why the author wrote the song. I got home, and I looked up the song, and I'd like to close with the words of the song. It's a prayer, and it's on your handout if you want to listen to it later yourself. So bow with me. I've walked among the shadows, you wiped my tears away, and I felt the pain of heartbreak, and I've seen the brighter days. And I prayed prayers to heaven. From my lowest place, and I have held your blessings. God, you give and take away. No matter what I have, your grace is enough. No matter where I am, I'm standing in your love. On the mountains, I will bow my life to the one who sent me there. And in the valley, I will lift my eyes to the one who sees me there. When I'm standing on the mountain, I didn't get there on my own. And when I'm walking through the valley, I know I am not alone. Your God of the hills and valleys. I've watched my dreams get broken. And you I hope again, no matter what, I know I'm safe inside your hands. Father, you give and take away every joy and every pain. Through it all, you will remain over it all. And I am not alone. I will choose to say, blessed be your name. Amen. You are dismissed.